impossible in real world often means it's bad in the sense that we want things to be possible. After all, we had years of marketing campaigns telling us that nothing is impossible if only you have enough will. And generally, when something is said to be impossible, the first desire is to make it possible to resist against this statement. In science, and especially in engineering, overcoming impossible things is often the goal. Yet, if things are proven to be impossible, like faster than light, travel, then it's perfectly fine to accept that fact. And in those fields, things that are impossible, and we have proofs that they are impossible, work as kind of signposts in this vast area of knowledge that is mostly unknown and mostly undiscovered. These signposts kind of tell you that, well, this way, this is it. It could be some other way. It's not that you cannot get beyond this point, but through this particular route, that's it. And it's kind of a sobering fact, and it gives some structure to the whole unknown universe. Just like with the light speed example, this limit doesn't technically mean you cannot travel faster than light. You cannot just maybe teleport or somehow appear on the other side of a big chunk of space. And if you calculate the speed in heavy air quotes, then it would be higher than speed of light. That's maybe possible. But what's impossible, and we know it's impossible, is literally moving through space, through 3D space at least, faster than this particular speed. The fact that this impossible thing is actually not a broad uh, assumption or statement, but a rather particular concrete fact. Yes, it limits things fundamentally, but it gives you flexibility and it, it actually gives you hope. Faster than light travel could be possible, but we at least know that this particular kind of faster than light travel isn't possible. Moving through space faster than light isn't possible. So yeah, we shouldn't really pursue this avenue. If you go further down or further up, depending on how you look at it, to lower levels of human endeavor into the universe, into the unknown, and you get to pure things like math, pure natural science of math. Impossible things become kind of less relevant. The fact that something is possible or impossible isn't super interesting to mathematicians, at least it seems so. They are much more interested in the fact. If something is possible or if something is impossible, don't care. But can we prove it? So it seems like mathematicians are perfectly happy with things being possible or impossible. Either way, they want to be absolutely sure one way or another. So what really drives them crazy, it seems, is uncertainty. This is why famous theorems like Fermat's last theorem or some unsolved conjectures in math are this important and dramatic. It's because of uncertainty. Before Fermat's last theorem was actually proved, no mathematician could be sure whether the statement in that theorem is true or not. Is it possible to solve that thing or it's impossible to solve it? And that is the worst feeling for someone who's into math. Computer science, by extension, is in a similar position. There are things that are possible, there are things that are impossible, but the important part is, can we prove it? So today, I want to talk about three impossible things in computer science. They are not related to one another. They are actually on different levels or in different groups, and I don't think it's fair to put them into this one group because, well, the only common thing they have with one another is that they have somehow incorporated the word impossible into its informal description. But other than that, they are just different ideas, theorems, and problems in computer science. They are the halting problem, the cap theorem, and the two journals problem. 
So we're gonna start with the halting problem, which is, I guess, the closest to everyday programming, or I'd say the most relevant to everyday programming, uh, yet it's not really something we think about because it describes the edges of what's possible, the edges of the outskirts of uh, computing in general. Can you write a program which analyzes any other program and tells you with certainty whether that other program halts or not? By halting, I mean the program finishes. It doesn't work forever. It finishes, it gives you the answer. Now, whether it gives you the correct answer or an incorrect answer or says there is an error, it doesn't matter. The important part is the program finishes. It doesn't hang forever. And not halting means it hangs forever. It could be an infinite loop. It could be a bug. It could be something. But it just, it never finishes. So can you write a universal analyzer program like that? And I want to say yes. Like the first desire, the first reflex says, yes, sure, why not? I guess I can write uh, some sort of analyzer of source code. After all, many decent modern IDEs and debuggers and some programming environments do exactly that. They tell you, for example, you have an infinite loop, like, or this part of code is never reached. They somehow analyze code and tell you something before it even runs. There are static code analyzers. There are dynamic code analyzers that somehow analyze the code as it runs, and they can tell you that something is wrong. So clearly this is possible. So yes, but the answer to the halting problem is no. It's impossible to write such a machine. The important caveat here is that it's not impossible in some cases. Like in this case, it's clearly possible. A program can deduce if there is an infinite loop, even a complex one with some dependencies and variables and dynamic substitution and stuff like that. It's still somewhat possible and it's getting better. The halting problem says it's impossible to write a universal machine that works in all the cases. In other words, there will always be the case where it's impossible to predict whether a machine going to halt or not. And the proof is rather simple, but you have to imagine a little bit. Just to make it simpler, we're not going to talk about machines or programs. Let's just talk about functions and data, because it's the same thing. A function is technically a program, and a program is technically a machine, and a machine is technically a computer, and the computer is technically a Turing machine, and this is what Alan Turing was actually talking about in this particular case. It's easier to think about this problem as a computing problem, but underneath he was actually trying to solve a mathematical problem, in particular in the area of math called formal logic. So he was trying to solve the decidability problem in formal logic, and it turns out formal logic is undecidable. But that proof would have taken us quite some time, and I don't think it's a good idea to talk about it in detail in this audio format. But the beauty of the halting problem and the beauty of many proofs in computer science, we're going to talk about this later, is that it gives you a different perspective and it's often much more visualizable, especially to technical people who are already familiar with some concepts like functions and data and arguments and running code, etc. So imagine the question was about a function. Does a function exist? A function that analyzes other functions. And you know, in many programming languages, functions are first order concepts, meaning you can pass a function to another function as argument. Functions and data are the same. Assume this function exists. You just download some library, connect it to your program, and now you can import this one function called analyze. The API description says, just pass it two arguments. First, pass it the function in question, the function you want to check. And second, pass it a string of data that will be the input for that function. And this analyze will return a Boolean value, true or false. True if that given function with that given input halts or finishes. And no or false if it never finishes, if it loops forever, 
hangs forever. It would be great to have this kind of tool in my disposal as I write code, because infinite loops aren't the only thing that cause programs to never finish. It could be just some mistake in my code or some combination of things happening that I didn't think about. It would be great to have my debugger OID tell me that. It would be also great to have this sort of analyzer built in into the operating system, because how often do we see apps just not doing anything and thinking, well, should I close it? Should I or like, should I restart my computer? Or should I just wait a little bit more? Sometimes I wait and it unhangs and everything is fine. And sometimes I wait for 10 minutes and nothing's happening. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, that's it. Oh no, maybe just I'll give you one more minute. It would be great if the operating system would have detected that and said, well, you know, you don't have to wait. You're going to wait forever. So just do something. So the proof to the halting problem starts with this assumption. A function like that exists. You can use it. This is how you use it. And now the next step is I decide to modify it. I create another function called myAnalyze. It also takes two arguments, a function to check and a string of data that will be the input to that function. Inside myAnalyze, first thing I do is I call originalAnalyze and I just pass along those two arguments. I get the answer from analyze and depending on that answer, I do different things. So I have a if statement. If the answer from the analyze was true, meaning it deduced that the function passed as the argument is going to hold, I go into an infinite loop. So I just start something like while one is less than two, print, and I just go into an infinite loop of printing stuff. If analyze, however, said false, in other words, if analyze deduced that the function in question doesn't stop, then I stop. So I do kind of the opposite of what analyze says. Now, this alone doesn't prove anything. Well, yes, I can do it, so what? The meat of this proof is the next step. And this is a bit mind boggling, so bear with me. The next step is I pass my analyze function to itself as both arguments. So I call my analyze and give my analyze as the first argument and my analyze as the second argument. So I'm asking the question, does my analyze hold when I use my analyze as its input? Now it's easier to maybe draw this on a piece of paper. Imagine functions are like boxes and you pass this box into this box and this box into this box. In the end of the day, the problem is that there are only two possibilities. The function that you just wrote, my analyze, just like any other function in the universe, it holds or it doesn't hold. It's one of those. If it holds, then by the logic you just coded in, it will loop forever because we used analyze to check whether it holds or not. And then if it holds, if it says true, then it loops forever. On the other hand, if it doesn't hold, if the original analyze said false, then it holds because this is, that's what we put in the if state. So we have a problem here. We have a function that doesn't hold when it holds and holds when it doesn't hold. Even speaking about it doesn't make sense because it's a paradox. It's something that is and isn't. It's something that is black and white at the same time. So this means the original assumption that we started with cannot be true because it led us to this paradox. It led us to this impossible thing. And that proves that the original assumption was wrong, meaning the opposite of original assumption should be true. And this is how you prove the halting problem. That means you cannot assume, you cannot ever imagine a world where that detector analyzer exists because it leads to a contradiction. And this is an example of a popular technique in math and science of proof by contradiction or reduction to absurdity. And this is why our operating systems could never be truly sure in all cases whether a program should be killed or you should wait.
All right, the second problem is the CAP theorem. CAP stands for Consistency, Availability, and Partition Tolerance. And this theorem talks about distributed systems. And again, let's talk about a particular example. Any decently big web service uses multiple computers at the same time, multiple data centers, multiple servers. For example, Netflix, technically they could just use one computer, this one huge powerful computer somewhere in California and everybody all over the world would connect to that single computer. That would actually be really good for Netflix. That would make their lives much, much more easy because they wouldn't have to think about things like cap theorem. But that wouldn't be such a good idea. And there is a reason nobody does that. First, speed. Yes, if you live in California, it would be great. But if you live in Japan, then connecting to Netflix servers in California would take a longer time. Especially for streaming services, that isn't really a good idea. But Google, Instagram, Facebook, they all have data centers around the globe. And part of the problem they're trying to solve is speed. They want the connection to be as fast as possible. So when you go to Japan and you go to the same website, connect to the same account, you actually technically are talking to another computer, probably. So when I go to Netflix from Finland, I'm connecting to some, I guess, some Nordic server somewhere in Sweden. And if you go to Netflix from US, you have multiple servers around the States and you connect to the closest one, or depending on the network conditions, maybe to some other ones, but not the one on the other side of the globe. Another problem this solves is putting things into one basket, because if you only have one computer, one server, then if something goes bad, all of Netflix is down for everybody on the planet. So that's not good. If my Nordic server goes down, I probably wouldn't even notice because I would be automatically rerouted to some other server in Europe. And it seems like Netflix was never down, but in fact, there was a fire in the data center or something. There are also other reasons for this distributed system of servers, but these are two main reasons. But there are problems. And the biggest problem is that in the perfect world, you want all the servers to be in the same state to be available all the time and to be resistant to any network outages. So these are the three requirements that we want. But the CAP theorem says you can only have two. You cannot have all three. And it's worth talking about each requirement before we actually go into the proof. So consistency means all the servers on the network know the same things. They share the same state. With the Netflix example, let's say I just finished watching all seasons of Rick and Morty. So Netflix should record this event or in other words, remember this particular account has watched this series. Now, Netflix is a bit of a bad example because, at least in my experience, it often forgets that I watched something. It shows me some episodes as unwatched, even though I clearly watched them until the end. But let's say these are just bugs. It should just remember. And all the servers all over the planet should know this as fast as possible. Even though I was talking to this particular server in Sweden, the servers in California and Japan and other parts of the planet should also have this information as fast as possible. And if I go to California and open my Netflix, I'm connecting to the Californian server and I see the same state. This is consistency. Now, what if there's a network problem and these two servers couldn't talk to each other? In that case, consistency should mean the server should never lie to you. If I go to California and that server was disconnected due to network outage, if I want my system to be consistent, then it shouldn't give me any answer because it could not give me the correct answer. So it should just stay silent. In in other words, a consistent system never lies. It might not give you an answer at all, but if it gives you the answer, it is verified to be true. So that's consistency. Availability, well, that means things are available. Servers are always on. That's easy to understand. 
And partition tolerance is about how these servers react to network outages. Partition means a portion of this network is partitioned. It's like isolated from other ones. There's a wall erected around them and they cannot talk to each other. If something really bad happens when the network is out for a part of the servers, if it's a catastrophic event, that means the system wasn't really partition tolerant. It reacted to a partition in a bad way. And if nothing bad really happened and everything is perfect, then it has a high partition tolerancy. It's really good. So these three requirements, Cap Theorem says you can only have two at the same time. And it's easy to prove because, well, you can just imagine starting with two and then seeing how the third is always impossible. So let's start with the first two. Let's pick partition tolerant and available. I watched Rick and Morty here in Finland. This information is saved to the Swedish server and it's quickly replicated to other servers in Europe. But there is a problem with the international network cable. The cable that goes from Europe to the United States is broken. A shark ate it. This information isn't replicated to the United States servers. But since we had chosen for the system to be available at all times, if I magically teleport to California and log in into my account there, I will see that Rick and Morty isn't watched. So it's not really true, but the system has to be available. We put this requirement in, so the server should always give me an answer, some answer. So this means the system isn't consistent. So we cannot have consistency in this scenario. Okay, let's pick another two. If our system is partition tolerant, and consistent. This means the servers should give correct answers only, and if they cannot give a correct answer, they should just be silent. In the same situation, I watch it here, I teleport to California, I log in, and I don't see any information about my watch status. It just, it says, I don't know whether you watched Rick and Morty or not, because the network is down, and the server knows that it doesn't know the correct answer. And how does it know that it doesn't know? Well, there are ways to check. There could be some timestamp related checks or an easier thing to imagine is that when I ask a server a question, then it should first verify the answer with all other servers because it needs to be consistent. But since a shark has eaten the network cable, it cannot talk to parts of the network. It cannot talk to the servers in Europe. So it's not sure what reality is. And being consistent means it won't even tell you anything. So that makes the system not available. Okay, last attempt. Let's pick another two. Let's pick consistency and availability. And let's start with an easier scenario where everything is fine, the network is up, the cable is okay. So I watch the thing here and then I teleport wherever. I go to California, I go to Japan, everything is fine. All the information is replicated all across the world and I can ask any server any information and I get the correct consistent answer. But what happens if I introduce a partition now? What if now I release the shark and it eats the cable? Well, then we are forced into one one of the first two scenarios. We either get inconsistency or non-availability. This again is a theoretical limitation. This means a completely 100% available, consistent and partition tolerant thing is impossible. It's an impossible distributed data storage. You cannot have it. But in reality, all three requirements aren't black and white switches. It's not just thing is consistent or inconsistent and that's it. They are spectrums. And when I interact with the system as a user, I care about some consistency and I care about some availability. So a system could be half consistent. It could be that it gives you an answer, but since it knows 
it could be a wrong answer. Maybe it gives you a side note. It, it says, here's a disclaimer. This answer maybe is not up to date. And again, as long as you know it and you know what it means, it's okay. It's better than no answer. Also, availability. It could be on different levels. Maybe the system is available for writing, giving information, and not available for reading. Or maybe it's available for reading, but not all kinds of information. Maybe some information is cached. And again, there could be something to mitigate this. And in all three cases, you have probably been in, in either position, even if you hadn't noticed it. But software is getting better at mitigating all these limitations. But it's, of course, useful to know that those limitations are there. All right, let's talk about the last thing, which is two generals problem. This is something you definitely experienced in your life at least once. There are two generals leading two armies, and they stand on the opposite sides of the valley. They are on different hills, and there's a valley underneath, and there's a castle in the valley. The castle is really important and it's really strong. If only one army attacks the castle, they will die. The only way to win is to attack at the same time. But this is medieval times. There are no phones, no internet. The only way to communicate is by a horse and a messenger. So they need to communicate and coordinate an attack. So the first general thinks, let's attack at midnight. And he sends a messenger to the other general with a piece of paper that says, let's attack at midnight love you. The messenger goes and the first general thinks, well, I need some sort of confirmation, right? I, I need to be sure that they received the message and they agree. So he asked the messenger to come back with the confirmation message. So the second general receives the message and he agrees. He sends the message back and he says, yes, I agree. Let's attack at midnight hugs and kisses, and the messenger goes to the first general, and now the second general thinks, wait a minute, what if something happens? What if the messenger is lost in the valley? I need to be sure that he received my confirmation, because if he hadn't received my confirmation, then he's not sure that I confirmed, so he might not attack, and then I attack alone and we die, so that's not good. So he asked the messenger to come back with some confirmation of his confirmation, and you see where this is going. This is an endless game. At any point, any general isn't sure whether his last confirmation was received, so he asks for a confirmation, and here we go again. Two generals' problem states that it's impossible to have a reliable communication over unreliable communication channel. And that communication channel is definitely unreliable. It's horse-based, come on. But our networks, like the internet, is unreliable as well. Now, you might think, yeah, but come on, if you see the messenger five times, you can be somewhat sure, right? It's it's okay. They somehow did it in medieval times and they had some quite successful military operations. So it was good enough. And yet, true, that's good enough. You can be sufficiently sure that the message was received and everything is fine and come on, just stop with the messenger. But again, this is a theoretical thing. It means if you want to put a number on it, you can never be 100% sure. You can be sufficiently sure for practical purposes, but things still happen and there's nothing you can do. So I mentioned you have definitely experienced this because imagine you want to buy something off of Amazon. You click this horrible... <laughs> one click buy button your browser hangs and you wait a minute and then it says something went wrong try again now if you think about it if you know about the two generals problem or if even if you don't know about this problem and you're not a computer scientist but you just think okay so i'm here i'm at this computer and i send the information with my payment stuff to the amazon computer which is somewhere else maybe in california again and uh, then my computer says something went wrong now why would why would it say that maybe 
it says that because the confirmation of my payment didn't come through. But that doesn't mean the payment didn't come through. That's just the confirmation. Maybe when I clicked buy, my information was successfully sent to Amazon and Amazon successfully charged my credit card and created the order and everything is fine. But then it had to send a confirmation message back to my browser. And maybe this is when something went wrong with the network. A shark attacked again and my browser never received the confirmation message. It's programmed to react to this by saying something went wrong, try again. You would be pressed to try again, but maybe that would charge you twice because you've been already charged. Now, again, there are ways to mitigate this. Well, maybe you'll be charged twice and then the customer support would quickly fix this and yeah, why not? They, you also get a gift card, so it's even better. Or, of course, there should be ways to never charge you twice. If you click try again, then Amazon systems should detect that you are trying to pay for something that you have already paid for, so you wouldn't be charged twice. And then maybe you'll get an explanation email in a few minutes or something. So in all three cases, in the halting problem, in the cap theorem, in the two generals problem, they describe the limitations, the outskirts of what's possible and impossible. But in real world scenarios there are always ways to go around this problem and do something that makes sense in a well-designed system trying again should never be a problem this chart should never come twice on the same order and this is the responsibility of back-end developers of amazon all actions should be like that all actions should have this property of idempotency meaning doing something twice shouldn't do it twice if it doesn't make sense like you might have seen some websites where you put a comment under a blog post and you hit publish twice and your comment is published twice. Now that shouldn't happen. A well-designed system should react to the second click and see that it doesn't make sense. Maybe you've seen some especially government sites that say do not click this button twice and I'm always thinking I'm gonna click it how many times I want. You should react to it only once. That's your job. Or something like don't reload this page or you're gonna have consequences. <laughs> And again, a well-designed system, and it's possible to design a system well enough so that clicking a button any number of times you want or reloading the page shouldn't really break anything, shouldn't really affect the things that are happening. It's interesting to see how computer science problems, especially the first one, the halting problem, while being part of math, computer science being part of math, it brings back to math a notion of time. And at the same time, it kind of shows you the time is not super relevant. If you look at math, it's mostly kind of timeless. It talks about facts and it describes facts in a declarative manner. It just says, this is this, and we see that this means this. And it's not really concerned about things happening over time. Yet there are parts like algorithms first mentioned thousands of years ago, or in the more recent times, Persian mathematician Al-Khwarizmi was talking about formalizing algorithms, and this is where the word algorithm comes from. It's his name, and his name comes from the name of a city called Khwarezm, which is today in Uzbekistan. And that was more than a thousand years ago. Before that, ancient Greek mathematicians, when talking about what they can do to triangles and spheres, they were talking about processes, the steps you have to take. So mathematics had a notion of time or things happening over time a long time ago. For the most part, even proofs aren't really about time. Well, a proof by contradiction, I guess, is more about time because you have to take steps and you just, you have this process that you go through. But many other proofs are kind of declarative. They just say, well, this is this and this is this. And the only reason we perceive it as things happening over time is because, well, everything happens over time for us. We are four-dimensional creatures. We live in dimensions 
one of which is time and it always goes forward and if we read the declarative timeless mathematical piece then we perceive it as things happening over time but that's not part of math that's part of our perception computer science is mostly about computing and computing is things happening over time computing would be probably impossible without time and this is why alan turing when thinking about computing imagined a turing machine a machine that is really really mechanical even though it's a hypothetical idea it describes a really imaginable mechanical machine and our computers look a lot like that machine so that machine works over time there are processes that happen over time and they describe computation but at the same time there's this turing church hypothesis where we can see that turing machine being a mechanical machine sort of thing describes a model of computation that can also be described without it lambda calculus invented by alonzo church shows that you can achieve the same level of computation in a drastically different manner. Lambda calculus doesn't talk about machines or processes or things happening over time. It's highly mathematical. It's a declarative notion that just describes facts. And by seeing and proving that the Turing machine and lambda calculus are equivalent, we see that time is kind of secondary. It's not super relevant. It could be, but it can also be avoided. And this isn't a concrete topic of conversation. This is something that came to my mind, but time Time is interesting in this way. It seems like it's really important, but sometimes we see that it's not really. Even in physics, most of the laws of physics kind of don't care about time, especially they don't care whether time goes backwards or forward. Either way, it works. But some parts of physics, especially parts concerned with entropy, they seem to be tightly connected to time going one way and not staying in place. This is just interesting to think about, but we are going way too deep. We have to stop here. Thank you. I hope you like it. Until next time, cheers.